theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, Joy. How are you? I am doing great. And I am excited this morning because we are going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is education reform in urban schools. We know that we continue to have a huge achievement gap between Blacks, Latino, and their white counterparts in spite of past reforms. It is so very important that we continue to address this issue and we create effective strategies and reform. So today we have Dr. Sandy Womack with us to share his passion on education reform and effective strategies that he has implemented. I am excited to introduce Dr. Sandy Womack. He is a lifetime educator with 30 plus years of experience, earning his doctorate in education from Ashland University in Ohio. Dr. Womack has been an urban pioneer, blazing a trail of impactful successes that have grown and benefited the future leaders, the students of today. At only 29 years of age, Dr. Womack earned and was awarded his own building as head principal, a rare and unique accomplishment. Dr. Womack is the author of two books, Even the Best of Plans Go Astray and Creating Successful Urban Schools, the Urban Educator's Month-by-Month -month Guide to School Improvement. His turnaround leadership skills and his targeted strategic vision have transformed and remolded urban schools from academic emergency to an effective ranking in a very short time. Welcome to our show, Dr. Womack. Good morning, ladies, how are you? Good morning. So I really love the topic of that one book, even the best plans go <laughs> awry. So that sounds like my life sometimes, you know, I'm a big planner, which plans are good because it gives you other options, right? When you have a plan, you have some strategies of how to work around that, but it sounds like my life. But what we're going to talk about this morning is a very passionate topic for me. One that stems from my experience growing up and my experience as a middle school teacher witnessing firsthand the mediocre instruction that some black and brown children receive. So I'm very interested, what in your past inspired you to be so passionate about the work of transforming urban schools? I think a lot of things that have happened in my life are based on my experiences and my encounters. And so I think I mentioned in my book, it's called Even the Best of Plans Go Astray, is 
My father was incarcerated for the majority of my life. And I found out during his high school career, he had dropped out of high school, but then he went back to school and finished up. So when I was in college, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ben Yohannan, who came in from the University of Cairo in Egypt. And Dr. Ben asked me three questions. Those questions were, who invented the light bulb? Who wrote the three musketeers? And how did Moses know he was wrong when he brought the Ten Commandments down when he had already killed somebody in Egypt? And I was at Mount Union, which was a Methodist school. So the first question I figured I knew, Thomas Edison, he said, you're wrong. Well, the guy's from Egypt, so I figured you're wrong, man. You're right. I mean, you know, you're getting $10,000 to speak. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Then I said Shakespeare for classic English literature. He said, you're wrong again. And I was like, that must mean you're right. And finally, when he talked about Moses, I'm at a religious college, so I had to take the synoptic gospels, women of the Bible, that somebody was going to challenge him on that because Moses had killed the slave driver well before he brought down the Ten Commandments. And Dr. Ben went on to explain that Lewis Latimer invented the carbon filament to make the light bulb work, but you don't know that. And he showed me a picture. He showed me a picture of Alexander Dumas, who's a French black man who had an Afro and talked about his family and different books he had written from the Count of Monte Cristo to the Iron Mass, all classic literature. And he talked to me about Egypt being where Goshen was, and that was in Africa. And I'd never learned any of these things, not going to an all black high school. I mean, like 99.9% African-American. Here I was at a Methodist college, which was 98.1% white. And I learned these things. And all it kept making me think is there's another side to this story. And if I know more and I know better, I can do better. And so at that point, I said, I want to be an educator because he enlightened me that day to the point that it made me really want to learn about education and being a teacher and run my own schools so that I can incorporate that type of curriculum into the system. What I found out as a curriculum director is there was no place for that information. It was not on a state test, the ACT, the SAT, et cetera. But what I found is by giving students of color a positive sense of self and seeing themselves in a curriculum, my students began to flourish because they were learning new facts, things that they never knew about before. And I didn't call them facts. I said, you're learning new truths. And by learning new truths about Latimer and the filament or Dumas and the Count of Monte Cristo and being an author, it helped change the perspective. And that is what became the impetus for me to be going to education. What are your theories as to why people of color are not entering the teaching profession, you had a way in, you were inspired with changing the curriculum, but where is everyone? Why can't we attract people of color to the teaching profession? I think it's not only a person of color situation, I think it is a profession that has not been built up like it used to. We as educators were respected in our community. We were revered in our community. People came to us in order to work together collectively as a group of professionals. And over the course of time, I would say probably prior to No Child Left Behind being implemented in about 1998, 1999, I would say that the profession itself has not been looked at as it used to be or as it ought to be. And as a result of it, the one good thing about COVID is, is that parents began to respect teachers so much more because they had to teach their kids at home every day. So kids were not able to go to school. And so now I have to respect this teacher. You know, it's hard enough to raise your own kids, let alone somebody else's. And so now here I am used to go to work every day, all of the above. And now I'm being um, responsible for educating my students. I believe people of color though, have moved away from education 
due to the fact that the things that they would like to teach or incorporate into the curriculum are not a part of the state test. And as a result of them not seeing themselves in the curriculum or being able to incorporate those practices into what they know are quote unquote best practices, because retention is works best when you can connect my content to my context that helps with retention. And so I think that they're not seeing themselves in a the curriculum. They're not seeing themselves in those professions. And as a result of it, they're looking elsewhere in order to find a way to generate revenue for themselves and their families. I think we have to actively put in programs in order to help and support that if we want to make that happen. At Mount Union, we started a Grow Your Own program in order to get African-Americans to come back on campus. We're small Methodist college. And as a result of it, they said, we can't get African-American professors. And we're like, well, yes, you can. And so what we said is if you provide us scholarships to go to graduate school or to get our doctorate degrees in agreement that once we come back, we have tangible employment here on campus, then you'd be surprised at how many students will take advantage of that. And Mount Union still has a Grow Your Own program where they send African-American students like my fraternity brother, Dr. Clark, off to Duquesne, where he became a doc got a doctorate. Is a professor on campus. Um, they sent his wife, Sunil Mumford, off to school, got a, a master's degree in physical therapy. She became a professor on campus. Andrew Booth went and got his master's degree. He still works in the Office of Human Resources. And Mountain Union paid for it. So they started Grow Your Own programs in order to sustain and increase the population of African-American students working on that college campus. And I believe that that is something that can be mimicked or duplicated on other campuses that they are serious about retaining African-Americans in the education profession, providing them a way to take care of their graduate school and viable education afterwards. Those are some great strategies. And actually, I alluded to some of those strategies in a recent article that I wrote about teacher shortage. And we know we have this huge teacher shortage nationwide, especially in our state, the state of Illinois, and also amongst African-American teachers. It's a huge shortage. And so one of the things that I discovered, in addition to what you said, is that these talented people coming out of high school and coming out of college, they have many more choices now. So this is no longer the 1950s where the choices were being a clerical or being a nurse or being a teacher. They have thousands of options now. Why teaching? What? How are we going to attract them to teaching when they have so many other options and how do we make that attractive? So I like what you were saying about they have to see themselves in it. We need to teach differently. There's more that we need to do to attract lots of students to teaching, but especially black and brown people to teaching. So what would you say to a person that's thinking about teaching and how would you attract this talented person that can go into almost any field that they want to, to come into teaching. One of the first things that comes to mind is I've always felt like this was a calling more so than a career or a profession. And so I would ask them about the teachers who made our biggest difference in their lives and what it has done for them in regards to them being talented, gifted, or accelerated in the things that they do. And how much impact has that actually had on you? So that therefore, maybe you might be able to have that type of impact on somebody else by using your talents, your skills, and your gifts in order to educate others. Another thing I would say is that public education right now, according to the Pew Research, is predominantly students of color. 51% of the students in the nation are students of color in public schools. So therefore, you'd have an opportunity to reach and work with students who look like you who need this. Education provides you choices, chances, and options. 
And I've always said as one of your administrators at Governor States, education is economic development. And if you can use your talents and skills to give that to others, then that provides us help and support within our communities because we're trying to build foundations. And when I say foundations, I mean foundational pillars in our community to help support and sustain the momentum that we're hoping to see as we move into new leadership. And so we want to build foundation that will help people move into the right direction. Education provides you choices, chances, and options, and it is economic development. So take your gifts in order to help others, because as my grandfather said, I've never seen a rich man die and take anything to heaven, and a poor man die and leave anything but his name. All you have is your legacy. And if you are able to help others, then your legacy continues to survive. And do you want to be a legacy leader? Do you want to be a master molder? If so, education is the profession for you. That's fantastic. And you have left a legacy. You already have transformed schools. That transforming schools tells us that you were able to also retain the best teachers. How did you keep these teachers on board? I think everything is based on relationships and developing close relationships, not superficial, but relationships, knowing who your staff is. The first time the two of us met, we talked about where you were from, Louisville, Kentucky, backgrounds in regards to moving into education, private schools, parochial schools, public schools. We had discussion and dialogue. We talked about commonalities. And one of the things that we were able to do to retain our staff is number one, to let them know that there's going to be incremental changes. This is not going to be monumental. We need to build momentum. Number two is those staff members who are willing to put in the most work where those staff members who reap the most benefits. And what I mean by that is this, I also try to find out what were my staff's skill sets. So we might have staff who played guitar, Mr. Spondil. He helped me learn to play the bass. We had staff who liked to play chess, Mr. Reed. We had staff who liked to cook, Chip Boschel, and provided them with opportunities to take something that they were passionate about and do extended day programming through Title I funding that I had available. And it also brought Kia's interest there. So we had cooking classes, culinary, we had guitar lessons, we had um, classes for physical fitness. I'm a wrestler. So we had after school wrestling programs and allow those teachers to use something that they would do if they were not in education as a way to keep them there while we focus on education. And that helped us sustain our programs because it made it extended our school day and it provided my teachers a chance to share and use skill sets that they had and differentiate in order to get kids. And that helped them get to know the kids because they, I'm interested in cooking too. I'm going to Chip Voschel's class. I'm interested in wrestling. I'm going to Coach Womack's class. I'm interested in chess. I'm going to Kyle Reed's class. And those were after school or lunchtime activities. And those were some of the ways that we were able to retain um, some of the best teachers that we had because the difference between extraordinary and ordinary is extra. They were willing to do the extra, and I tried to find a way to support them, but we also had to let some teachers go because some people did not believe in the vision, nor did they have a belief set or the mindset that these students who are underprivileged, economically distressed, maybe coming from single-parent homes, have the capability of becoming doctors or lawyers or entrepreneurs or accountants or you know politicians. And so we had to be real about that mindset too, and that was part of what we dealt with. But really, just trying to get to know my staff, what their skill sets were, what they like to do, and how we could use that in order to enhance the educational options for our students was a good way for us to retain the staff that we had. Dr. Womack, let's talk about those schools. So what schools have you worked with and what have been some of the most notable results? 
So the first school that you mentioned I worked with was called Lathrop Elementary School. Lathrop Elementary School at that time, IDA was in place, but we had like 32% of the special education students at our school. I hate to use that term. I said students with exceptionalities. We took off special ed. So these are students with exceptionalities. Orthopedically handicapped, multiple handicapped, cognitively delayed. And that was my first assignment. And I didn't have a lot of background in regards to exceptional children in regards to that sense. We're like 2% pass rate on the fourth grade math test, 17% pass rate on the fourth grade reading test. And over the course of those five years we were there, that fourth grade reading went up to over 68% pass rate. And that math rate went up to 72%. And that was a direct reflection on the teachers that were in my building. But I went to New York, a lady by the name of Dr. Lorraine Monroe, who ran the uh, Frederick Douglass Academy, became my mentor. I was trained up under her every year for two summers. She would come to my building and give me ideas and strategies in order to enhance what we were doing at the school. And eventually we moved that school from a 55 on a performance index to a 79.9, going from an F to a C. And if we'd have got that one-tenth of a point, that would have got us to a B. I was hopeful that we could do that, but we didn't. And I was like, man, there's got to be a calculation error somewhere. But praise God, it worked out the way it was supposed to. But we did that through two or three common themes, exposure and experiences. This was a pre-K to five building. And my students who had orthopedically handicapped or multiple handicapped, like Rachel and King David, wheelchairs, spina bifida, those kids laughed and smiled every day. So it helped me with my mentality to see a kid who can't walk, has spina bifida, in a wheelchair, laughing and smiling every day like they're just so happy to be here. So it helped our mentality. You know, you complain because you have no shoes till you see a man who has no feet. And it helped us. But we put those kids on college campuses. Over the course of the five years I was there, I think we visited probably over 40 to 45 college campuses. And we brought parents with us as well because most of my parents – Somebody told you to get a good education. Well, what does that mean? And we wanted to show these parents that these college campuses were possible for their kids. So one of the main things we did was we made sure kids were on college campuses every year, four or five. And so therefore, that helped change the mentality of the teachers like these parents want it and these kids can achieve it if we put in the proper educational frameworks and make sure teaching and learning is the foundation of our school. Then I moved to, as a result of that, they moved me to the director of school improvement for Kansas City Schools. So I had like seven schools that I worked with, Sowers, McGregor, Schreiber, Harder, Allen, Belton. And four out of those seven schools moved up academically, May AYP, and two moved from either academic watch to effective rating. And we used some basic strategies. Number one, what should kids know and be able to do? Post it, making sure that everybody knows it. What are your goals? Post them. Make sure everybody knows it. Get these kids on college campuses and also differentiate and look at your data. Can your kids read, write, speak, but most importantly, critically think? And we use some basic foundational things to make that happen. Plus, we tried to make sure that we made these kids see themselves everywhere. So there were pictures of all types of people all over the walls. So if you're in a predominantly African-American building, you're going to see Carter G. Woodson. You're going to see Bessie Coleman. You're going to see Maya Angelou. You're going to see pictures of Harriet Tubman. You're going to see pictures of Louis Latimer. You're going to see pictures of Alexander Dumas. So the kids could see themselves, that these are things and these are people that you could attain to be. We didn't have a lot of athletes on the wall. Now, of course, I have Muhammad Ali because he's one of my favorite boxers. But in reality, we put these type of things up so the kids could see themselves. And overall, we made sure that the instructional leadership followed a lot of those same principles that Dr. Monroe taught me going back and forth to the uh, Frederick Douglass Academy and the principal's leadership that she had in New York. And then eventually I became the principal of Hartford. Um, Hartford was in academic distress. It was 
in year, what's called school improvement year eight. And if you know what SI year eight means, that's like the acts. We're closing the school, we're removing the principals, we're taking half of the staff out. And all of that had taken place by the time I got there. And over the course of three years, we were able to get that school from academic emergency to an effective ranking going from an F to a B. Although they closed the school down during the middle of my third year. The Board of Education voted to close the school down. It's called a Hartford story. You can pull it up in the Canton repository in our community using a what we call a trio method, schools, families, and communities, all coming together collectively to work on one student. So that became my tripod with the family at the top, the school here, and the community, and the student was in the center. How can all three of us encompass this student in order to get them to where we want them to be? And we were explicit in regards to our desired outcomes. It helped tremendously. So I've been blessed. But as I said before, I don't teach one class. So those are my teachers and the community members who made those phenomenal gains and changes because I, I don't teach those courses. I, I'm just the principal. But principals do lead the charge in their schools, of course. And you mentioned students lifting morale. Tell us how students help with that teacher buy-in for school change. I think success breeds success. And every student comes in as a gift. I hope that you don't mind on this podcast, but there's something that an uncle says sometimes. I got a lot of older gentlemen in my life who helped me. They said, you, you know, you are a miracle, man. They said out of 10 million specimens that your dad released, when your, your mom and dad got together, you're the only one that made it to the egg. You're a miracle, man. I mean, that's better than lottery odds. He said, so you have to think about that, sir. And, and so we tried to continue to encourage our kids to let them know you are a miracle. Out of 10 million specimens, you're the one that made it to the egg. That means you are here for a reason. You are resilient. You are tenacious. You have the ability to read well, write well, speak. We're going to work on your attitudes and belief. And we continue to encourage the kids so that therefore they can encourage the teachers. Because it's difficult sometimes when you come in, you're having family issues, things to take place. And we use that. And then our kids begin to take on projects. So we took them to New York for the New York Civic Leadership Institute, where they shadowed Mayor Bloomberg, David Patterson. We met him when we were in Albany. We just did a lot of things and our kids became advocates. And once kids began to understand how the political system worked, they became advocates for themselves. And that really helped encourage our teachers because these were kids 90% poverty, 90% African-American, multiracial, high percentages of special education. And once these kids started to shine, that made the teacher step a little bit like, yeah, that's my student. Yeah, that, that Joy Patterson, right. That's that, that, that she's in my class. You know, that, that Amy, oh yeah, she, she was in my class. And our kids start to write articles. They became advocates for themselves. They went to city council and petitioned because a pool had been closed in our neighborhood. They went to city council and petitioned in order to get funding, in order to build a new one. Now they got a water park instead of a pool, but at the same time, the kids did. And it helped build momentum. We got summer jobs through the Urban League and funding that came in. And it helped motivate because success breeds success. And we needed to see it just love your enthusiasm. I wish you were my principal back in the day. I miss being a principal. Yes. I mean, that's an effective, a very effective role, hands-on role. We are talking to Dr. Sandy Womack about education reform, and you were just speaking about your uncles and family. Can you share a little bit about your name? Because I love your name, Sandy. I want you to share that little story about your name, but I also want you to share information about the two books that you've written, Even the Best Plans Go Astray, which we know that happens in our personal lives, right? And creating successful urban schools. And if you could just share a little bit about some of the unique strategies that you discuss in these books. So <laughs> my name is Sandy. My father's name is Sandy. 
My grandfather's name is Sandy and my great grandfather's name is Sandy. But I'm actually the last of the Sandys because I have three daughters. So unless I have some grandsons and they name another one Sandy, that's it. But there are pros and cons that come with that because I am Sandy Jr. and my father is Sandy Sr. And he had a history of being incarcerated. So that has caused me some havoc. But at the same time, especially in the little city that I lived in where I was a principal, but that also became a blessing because I used to always say, I never want to do anything that will embarrass, ashamed, let down, or disappoint my grandparents. And I knew that my name carried a certain amount of weight in that city on a negative sense. So I wanted to make sure I counterbalanced that with something positive. But I'm glad to know that I'm the fourth generation of Sandy. And I found out I was a derivative of Alexander. So Xander, Alexander, et cetera. I'm like, okay, I like it, Sandy. But that was a blessing. But going back to the books, I wrote Even the Best of Plans Go Astray after a few incidents that took place in that city. And what I was doing is explaining that my mom and dad had these great plans for me. They got married at a young age. But then there were things that happened along the way, you know, that I'm not too proud to speak about, but at the same time took place. And my goal was to let other people know that it's never how you start, but how you finish that counts. So even the best of plans go astray was written as a result of letting people know it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And everybody has a story. You know, Moses was phenomenal but he also was a murderer. Jacob was phenomenal, but he also stole his brother's birthright. David was God's favorite, but he also had some issues with Bathsheba and his son Absalom. And I think far too often people don't tell their story from where it actually takes place. And so even the best of plans goes astray, talks about my experiences and my walk through life from the time that I was born and all the different places that we lived in. As I said before, we lived in 17 different locations before I was 17 years old, one of which was East 68th Street in Chicago when I was in preschool. And so with that being the case, that with that, that's what that book is about, is to motivate and inspire people to know that here's Dr. Womack that you see today, but it didn't start off that way. Dr. Womack had a lot of problems and issues that he was dealing with based on his environment, his expectations, his encounters, his uncles. Almost everybody in my family from the Womack side has been incarcerated but they all, penitentiary was an occupational hazard. It was just part of the life that they lived because of lack of education. They didn't have a skill set. They didn't value it. And even though somebody told them that, I don't think that they saw where a education could provide them the benefits to take care of gas, water, electric, cable, phone, food, utilities. They saw other means of doing that. And so they did, but praise God, he gave me the ability to wrestle. And as a result of it, I was able to get a scholarship and that helped me see something different. It took me out of that environment to another environment. So that's what the book, Even the Best of Plans Go Astray is about. Creating Successful Urban Schools was a book that I wrote about our experiences at Hartford Middle School and my experiences as Director of Principal Leadership. In my experiences in my research, I began to see that when principals were able to turn schools around, and this was based on a conversation that I had with Joe Clark at Mount Union. Joe Clark came to Mount Union when I was a student and I asked him what happened after lean on me. And he said, I got fired. I said, you got fired. I said, what you mean you got fired? I just made a big movie about you or anything else. He said, man, I was fired. And he eventually became the director of juvenile corrections, I think in New Jersey. And that's what he spoke about. But I never forget that because I was actually, that might've been my first or second year teaching in Alliance, Ohio. I came back on campus for Joe Clark speech. And we had a short intimate session with the black student union and he was there and it resonated with me. And so then I began to see after I started seeing people become successful at turning schools around, one or two things continued to happen. 
either number one, they moved him from the school. Like, why would you move a principal who's been successful in this neighborhood, in this community, and, and turn this school around or increase the levels of performance from the school that they're at? That should become their foundation. Other people should be coming to them, and they would move them out. And in most cases, the school would go right back to its current levels of performance. Like, man, and you're like, man, this person did all of this stuff, and now they moved them somewhere else, or they moved them up, as they did with me in regards to central office. After we were able to be effective at Lathrop, they moved me to central office. And two years later, Lathrop was closed and reopened as an alternative school. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. So I started to research schools who have been successful in regards to turning around, using the definition by Haberman, as well as a Kushner that says, 10 point more growth in three years or less on your graduation rate or on your overall performance. So I started to look and research those schools. And what I found was a consistent pattern that when principals were successful at turning a school around in three or less years, one or two things consistently happened. They were moved to another building, they were promoted or those schools were closed. And I was like, wow, why would you close schools? that are demonstrating that students who are economically distressed, economically challenged, minority, are able to demonstrate levels of performance that might duplicate or mimic some of the performance in some of the suburban districts. And it became an anom anomaly to me. So I wrote an article called Funding for Failure that was in the um, National Association of School Principals in September. And they talked about funding for failure and how No Child Left Behind had these scripts. So race to the top money, straight A grant monies, those monies were for schools that were underperforming. And the lower that you were performing, the more funding that you got in order to currently address those issues. So my funding or increases of funding was based on failure. And I was just like, how can that be is an anomaly. So that's what creating successful urban schools is about. It's a guide to explain to principals how to increase the current levels of performance to build social capital with your chamber of commerce, your politicians, your council people, your colleges and universities, how building that network around you will help support you and sustain you as you are making these changes and gaining momentum in the levels of performance of your students. Yeah, that sounds like a guide for district level administrators because this happens all the time. I wanna switch just a little bit and I wanna talk about your personal success because like me, you were considered an at-risk student when you were in school and you had all those things that were going against you for you not to be successful. What were some of the major factors that attributed to your success in spite of everything that was going on? I had some praying grandmothers. I had some grandmothers that prayed for me. That made a tremendous impact because I knew that there were people who depended on me not to be doing the same things that other people in my family had dealt with. As my grandmother told me, Sandy, you've come too far to go back now. And so that helped. I think just a positive sense of self and wanting to be able to do something different. I didn't want to fall into these all too predictable outcomes. And there were people that surrounded me, my coaches, mentors, uh, Bill Limley, Richard Decatur, Joanne Ray, Marshall Johnson, all of these people put things into me. They were just like, Sandy, we're gonna make sure that you stay on the straight and narrow. We are going to work with you collectively. And I had a positive sense of self. I began to understand that African-Americans had made significant contributions and I could be more than an athlete, an entertainer, civil rights and slavery. We are more than that. And as a result of it, I was inspired to give it to other people. And so those are the type of things that help. But a lot of it is those praying grandmothers and that rod of correction that they would give me if I went too far to the left or too far to the right. I hope we don't get in trouble for that. Yeah, those are the type of things that, that helped tremendously. And then when I had my daughters, 
you know, there was a sense of responsibility and urgency to make sure that they had a father that would be there so that they could wake up every morning and their dad would be at home, not taking a call from the penitentiary on a collect call from Mansfield Correctional Institute, missing birthdays, holidays, celebrations. Those are the type of things to help. I apologize about the emotion. It is something to be emotional about. We have so many students who do not have people to fill them. And, you know, we can point to these elements that build success. We want those positive influences. But what were some elements that caused demise in some schools? And how can schools prevent those pitfalls? Well, there's a quote that said, it's always easier to prevent than it is to rectify. Therefore, it is always easier to suppress the first temptation than to satisfy all that follows. Some things you never start, you never have to quit. And that was instilled in me by a gentleman by the name of Bill Limley. I think he is one of the reasons I have a doctorate today. He counterbalanced the things that was going on with my father. And he just showed me, he was a role model. He was a mentor. He was a fireman. He was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. He was respected in the community. He owned homes. He, you know, he was somebody that I could look to. He was the first person to tell me that you never want a job where the penitentiary is an occupational hazard. So I think mentorship is critical. We need to find mentors, female and male, who can come in and pull a kid up under their wings and show them something different, especially if they're coming from environments where the norm is pushing, hustling, violence, gang related, and not having home ownership. Somebody has to step in who's vested and vetted, who can tell their story and say, hey, listen, I've come from that. I understand it. Mentors matter. I think having a solid foundation academically, can you read well? Can you write well? Can you speak well? And most importantly, can you critically think? Do you understand from cause to effect? Can you think things through and providing your kids projects and opportunities that will help? Because it is always easier to prevent than it is to rectify. And so you try to put preventive measures. We have summer jobs for kids to keep them off the streets so they could put a little extra money in their pockets. You know, we try to provide mentorship opportunities and paid mentors for time that they spend, just like a coach. When our kids did those after school activities with my teachers, the cooking, the chess, the wrestling, if there were people who came, I tried to put a few little extra dollars in their pocket in order to say, hey, I need you to keep on coming because these kids need to keep on seeing you, but you're doing something that you like to do anyway. So you really do it for free. But can I get you a gift card here? Can I take you out to eat? Can we have something and continue to encourage? And I think those are the type of things that make a difference. People who genuinely care, provide mentors, get these kids a solid foundation academically, read well, write well, speak well, critically think, and get them a positive sense of self so that they don't gravitate to the stereotypical behavior that's shown on television, that's duplicated, and so much, so much of the music that we listen to sometimes so that they can see something different. Exposure changes expectations, but it's the experiences that we provide children that change their lives. How do we provide experiences that will make them want to do something different? That is my solid foundation on everything I do on my website, urbanschooleducation.com. Our mantra says it very simply, exposure changes expectations, but it's the experiences that we provide our children that change their lives. How do we provide those type of experiences? So you want to do something different. We've talked about all of the different approaches and how we can fill our students, how we can retain our teachers. Let's speak directly to a new principal walking into a critical situation of turning around a school. What are some tips or advice that you can offer that administrator for day one? So I can probably offer about two or three. 
Here's what we do. Number one, canvas your neighborhood. Walk the neighborhoods, walk the street, become familiar with the stores, the homes, the grocery stores, the gas stations, become familiar with the neighborhood that your students will be coming from. I would say number two, make sure that you identify and model whatever behaviors that you want for your kids and your staff. You got to model it. You can't just talk that talk. You have to model it. So therefore, if you want students to read well, then you, you, def you definitely need to be a reader. Keep books in your office. If you want them to write well, then you need to be able to write well. And you need to build the capacity of your community. Get to know, the first thing I would say is learn the name of every one of the students in your building if you can. Get to know their names because it impresses the parents and it impresses the kids and it shows that you care because there's no way you're going to be able to remember those kids' names unless you remember something about them. And once you are able to connect with your students, the staff will come after that. Because if you get the kids first, the staff will come. Most people say, get the staff, get the staff. You got, listen, get the kids. Once you get the kids, the staff and the parents going to follow. So make a concerted effort to get to know your kids, get to know those neighborhoods, and be clear in regards to what are your goals and expectations. Get voice and choice. What is our desired outcome? What is our current status? What's working for us and what's working against us? Let's make it clear. If we got to spend three months on that, what is our desired outcome? What is our current status in regards to our desired outcome? What's working for us and what's working against us? Let's get two or three clear goals and let's make it happen. Let's work together collectively. Get to know your staff. What are their likes, their interests, their dislikes, things that they would be doing outside of education because that provides you the ability to have extra opportunities at your school. Because when you're behind, you got to run further and you got to run faster. So we have to do some things that are going to enhance the school day. And by knowing the neighborhood and the people becoming familiar with you, you build capacity because those people now say, I see that principal walking these streets every day. I see that principal in this neighborhood. I see that principal walking these kids home. I see that principal at those bus stops. That builds capacity within the community. And then the community will begin to support you because they see that you are part of that community. And that the only way you can do that is to walk those neighborhoods on a constant basis and get to know the people in that community and get to know those kids' names. After that, there's a lot of different books out there that will show you what you need to do, teacher clarity, differentiation, staff buy-in. But those are the, it's the intangibles that make the difference. Know your neighborhood, know your kids, find your teacher's interests, and be, listen, be a, a beast about ensuring that your kids will leave your building reading better, writing better, speaking better, and critically thinking, and expose them. Expose them to as much as you can. And then when you expose them, make sure they have experiences that will help them retain it so therefore it becomes relevant. I wish we could talk to you all day. I know we only have a few more minutes, so we're going to try to wrap it up, but I'm smiling because it just reminds me. My husband, he just he retired last year as a middle school teacher and a basketball coach and a football coach. And we lived in the neighborhood. We made a conscious decision at that time to buy a home in the neighborhood where he was teaching. Mm -hmm. And oh my goodness, does it make a difference? We had kids every Saturday morning ringing the doorbell. Can Mr. Brown come out and play? Uh, so that was our experience living in the neighborhood and going to the stores and seeing the parents and making that connection. So a visit to the store that should have taken 30 minutes is now taking an hour and a half because that is where the relationship building is taking place and all those conversations. And it makes a huge difference when you are part of the community. So I was just smiling because that's our experience when we go to the store 
Yeah. Now that he's retired and the parents are still coming up to him, he has a nickname for every kid that he has ever taught. And they go by that nickname when he sees them. And I just want to say, hopefully you don't bill us later because this no. is like consultation for us. And we are implementing some great practices at Governor State University to attract retained teachers, especially teachers of colors. And you have really validated some of the things that we're doing. I just want to make mention of a couple of those things that we're doing that I think are really, really promising. We're working with some Title I schools to identify high school students early who may be interested in teaching. Once we identify them, we want to prepare them to be paraprofessionals. And then the schools have said, we will hire them as paraprofessionals. And so while they're earning a degree Excellent. to become a teacher, they'll be earning a salary as a paraprofessional. And because yeah. they're working in Title I school, they can have up to 50% of their loans forgiven. So that's one practice that we're really proud of. I'm also gonna brag about Amy just a little bit when she started a clinical immersion program and this is with a rural school that was predominantly minority. And the English candidates were placed there for a year while they were in their preparation program. And they were placed there with in-service teachers. She actually taught class in the school building. And I can recall their first week or couple of weeks, Amy, where they were sending you emails. They were crying. They were scared to be there. Most of our teacher candidates are white and we have very few minority and they were afraid to be there. And right. by the time end of the semester, they didn't want to leave. And yeah. that led to them student teaching there and then to employment opportunities. So those experiences are just great. And you've just really validated some of those kind of grow your own experiences, initiatives that really, really work. But I am just so happy that we've had this opportunity in this podcast for you to share your story because now we can share it, these strategies at a national level. And you know, I've taken away some great tips. You validated our Grow Your Own initiatives. We always talk about mentoring mm -hmm. and how powerful mentoring, you've benefited from mentoring and how having a great mentor can make a huge difference of how long you stay in the profession. Yeah, everybody needs somebody. Uh, you know, no man is an island that stands alone. And I just appreciate this opportunity. I, I'm very humbled and grateful for this opportunity. But I will say this, please continue to do what you are doing and make a difference. If it validated anything that you are doing, I will say this, the truth is always easy to remember. I'm just telling you the truth. And there's a huge difference between facts and truth, but the truth doesn't change. So continue to speak your truth and, and, and do what you're doing at Governor States. And listen, God bless you, ladies. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity. And we can always do this again. So you just let me know. Thank you. Enjoy your Have day. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy.